Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading its way through the New York Review Books classics. Our book this week is Turtle Diary by Russell Hoban. It was originally published in 1975. Modern existence can be atomizing, isolating. Certainly it is for William G. and Nira H., the lonely Londoners at the center of Russell Hoban's prickly yet heartwarming Turtle Diary. William works at a used bookstore and lives in a rooming house after a divorce that has stripped him of his home, family, and career. Nira is a successful writer of children's books who, in her own estimation, looks the sort of spinster who doesn't keep cats and is not a vegetarian. <laughs> looks like a man's woman and hasn't got a man. <laughs> By inexplicable coincidence, each is irresistibly drawn to the turtle tank at the London Zoo with a mind full of turtle thoughts, wondering how the creatures might be freed. Then one day, Nira wanders into William's bookstore, and together they form an unlikely partnership that will prove a small and perhaps lasting triumph of humanity and sympathy. Woo! That may be one of the best summations it's that true. we have read so far. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite good. We are joined by writer Anna Gavrilovska. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. So first off, of course, why did you pick this book to talk about? This was directly your choice. Well... I read it pretty recently for the first time last June. And I just remember, I mean, I, I really loved it. And I just feel like there's a lot to go over in it. Mm-hmm. I really loved the, the format of it, the structure going between the two voices, and then how amazingly Russell Hoban populates the same images in both voices. I just really loved that about it. What made you pick it up? So that's that's kind of a, a stupid reason, but I'll, I'll share it. <laughs> it was on sale outside one of my favorite bookstores. It was on their like sale rack. The book is like, there's like a little red mark on it. It's damaged. <laughs> and I always gravitate towards NYRB. Sure. So I was like, okay, I saw. I, the, the funny thing is I don't love the cover and I usually love all of their covers. Like I think this is like. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> In my opinion, gosh, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, it's their, it's their worst cover, but. Um, oh, <laughs> shots fired across the bow. Do we disagree? Not no, necessarily. We, we're discussing that. Yeah. Let's move that up. All right, let's <laughs> tell us about the cover yeah, art. Yeah. So I did some research. So the cover art is just called Turtles by the, I believe, Belgian street artist ROA or ROA. It is a mural that is, well, it was in Richmond, Virginia at the time. And oh, Richmond got rid of it? Yeah, it, it, was a, it was for a 2012 mural, like, city redecoration project. Okay. So I think it was supposed to be temporary. But if that's for the best, it's up to debate. <laughs> but in the past we've been like for example in the last book where we were like the chess story it was a image about like distorted views of people playing chess and falling into their circumstances by an artist that fled nazi germany to go into south america and it's like that's exactly zweig's story that's exactly zweig's history and russell hoban doesn't relate to richmond virginia at all this <laughs> picture doesn't really relate to the book at all we were struggling. I It's just turtles. I, I came up with a pretty long-winded idea that it's like, where it's inherently like two people meeting each other in the world. <laughs> so there's two turtles stacked. There, there's technically three turtles, but the two turtles are stacked directly on top of each other and looking opposite ways, which feels very similar to how Nira and William 
are inhabiting the world with each other, which is they're exactly the same, but don't see each other necessarily as much as they see other people. And then below that is a third quote-unquote turtle that's an empty shell, which emptiness is a, definitely a theme of the book. And so I, I can talk myself into it representing <laughs> things in the book. I just, this, this one we, was easily the one that we had the least to find overlap with. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. And I, but so I bought it because it was a, a cheap NYRB. And then I don't know why I picked it up one day to read. And I was like, oh, I'm so glad that I didn't let this cover dissuade me from actually mm. reading this because it almost <laughs> it almost did. It it almost did. Wow. I was in Barnes and Nobles recently and there most of the NYRBs are in the fiction section. This was the only one that was in the classics. And I think it was maybe the most recently published one I saw. So this book keeps on getting put in the weirdest places in bookstores, I feel like. <laughs> It'll show up anywhere. That's really funny for a book in which a bookstore is one of the I know. central locations. <laughs> mm-hmm. Indeed. So to talk a little bit about the author of the book, Russell Hoban wrote for both children and adults. Although born in the U.S., he moved to London in the late 60s as his marriage was falling apart and he ended up living there until his death in 2011. So I think readers of this book will recognize the elements of his life that he pulled and put into both of the main characters in different ways. One of them is a children's book author and the other one is a kind of sad divorced dad that hasn't seen his children in several years. When I learned about Russell Hoban's life and started reading about that, the overlap seemed very like palpable. And that just made the character of William especially even more sad. He was already just like the saddest man in existence to begin with. I don't know. He's, he's kind of happy in his sadness in a way, but we can get into that later. Yeah. So the book switches back and forth between the diaries of these two main characters who at first do not know each other, William G. and Nira H. And the author of the introduction, Ed Park, poses this question, and I thought I would steal it. He asks, why is it Turtle Diary and not Turtle Diaries? Did you have a thought about that? Because you did, you mentioned the diaristic structure and how that appealed to you. I guess on a broad level to steal their own wordings of their turtle thoughts. Like I, I, they do seem to inhabit the same ocean, I guess, to keep mm. going with their, their language. Also to steal from another thing I liked about their overlapping stories, the fronts and backs of things, how that concept keeps coming back and forth. So there, I've, maybe it's a stretch, but you could describe them both as the front and back of, of each other in a sure. way. So, I really like that question, and I, I think that those shared turtle thoughts, they're kind of the same. It's somehow the same mind in two different bo- like almost like a mental doppelganger. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's an interesting way to put it, because they definitely seem, don't seem to look the same, but they think exactly the same way in a, in a doppelganger would. Yeah. What do you two think? I, I felt similarly. I, I think that's definitely the most direct way it could be taken. I almost wondered if it was just sort of a play on words where Nira and William necessarily aren't the subjects of the diary. It is just the turtles. And so therefore it's just one Mm -hmm. overarching diary of turtles, which is kind of a more simplistic and less flowery or interesting way to discuss it. But I, I, I do really see how these two characters like just really inhabit the same brain and not even like 
a right brain, left brain way. It's just the same side of the brain, even. Everything they do and react to the rest of the world. We see them react to like very similar things in the same way, which feels like it would be repetitive or a little uninteresting in a way. But I find Russell Hoban finds the fascinations between two characters so inherently similar, very... He does it very playfully. I really like it, that about it. Yeah, I think it's an interesting choice because a diary is such a myopic form, potentially. Mm-hmm. It can be so obsessive on oneself, navel-gazing, and yet putting them both together, you see the coincidences and connections, and you put it very beautifully on a they're in the same ocean, and they're commenting on the same things that they're observing, and it coalesces in a way by the end and throughout the whole thing honestly from the beginning you see the way that they're interconnected and given that the characters are so lonely there's a comfort to the idea that put together they complete each other in a way (laughs) and this brings up like ideas about romance and completeness that the book is also grappling with but yeah it's kind of a perfect subtly provocative choice to call it a turtle diary yeah it really is Mm -hmm. why do you think that it goes with the last initial like william g rather than just william or william gibson or whatever his name is i'm not sure if i have a a thought on that i don't think i had given that really a particular kind of poignance of any kind other than it did make me think of sometimes in books where they'll have like a little dash instead of someone's Mm. name or something yes and i i never really understood why why that's the choice i guess i'm not sure what what do you guys think my my understanding of it was i think it made it both more specific than just the first name but less specific than the full first and last name and these characters are incredibly specific but they do kind of represent that like we all are very interconnected with each other and quite often we share the same sort of feelings and thoughts about things and so I feel like it's like an interesting balance point between that. These This William person and this Nera person really could be any William and any Nera in England. Mm. But the G and the H at least pick them out a little bit more finely. Because William, and I'm pretty sure Nera, is also a very common name. So I, I think that was the best reason I had. But I found it very uh, fascinating when Cassia brought that idea up to me. Like, why is there a last initial? I've been thinking about that for a couple of days. Yeah, just thinking of it now, I remember when I first made a Facebook account in like middle school, I didn't put my full last name. I was like Cassia first initial of my last name because I have such a strange name that if my last name was on there, you could find me immediately and I didn't want to be found immediately. And yet I wanted like my friends to be able to know that it was me. And these characters are kind of like that too. Like they're kind of reaching out, but they don't really want to be precisely located. They're not ready for that. Maybe they never will be. So I think it's kind of, yeah, I'm working my way into buying it as an intentional <laughs> choice. <laughs> I really like that, especially when not wanting to be found necessarily like that's like these two in a nutshell like they Mm -hmm. were found by each other like without they didn't want that at all but in spite of it yeah exactly although i do think there's a little there's a little part within them that does want to be found and that's what pulled the thoughts in but i guess that's what the initial is instead of no initial at all that initial is just that little bit that did want to be slightly found yeah cassia what was uh, populated in your middle school facebook page 
And how similar was it to the diaries of William and Neera in this book? I, you know what? I have zero recollection. <laughs> Darn. I was not, it was probably like really blurry, bad photos of like things I had drawn on the table at Ruby <laughs> Tuesday or something like just bizarre things. Fair enough. Loneliness is like one of the main shared experiences tying the two diaries together. How do you see Hoban depicting this condition through their entries? Like, how isn't he would be my first thought. <laughs> That's a great like the, way to put it. The, it's just one thing after another. And I think you used the word playful earlier. And I think that's what makes this book so- somewhat disconcerting in a way, because it is like very, very, very dark, but it's so playful and it's so funny. I think I was really surprised at how funny it was the first time I read it. I was laughing every page. Yeah. And, and yeah. about the darkest it, stuff. Yeah, it, totally. Or like, um, like one of the first one of the first lines about the turtle soup, and he's like, "I'm William Soup." Yeah, like it's just, <laughs> if it comes to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is yeah key if it comes to that. So, so I guess that's a, an easy my easy first response. I will say, kind of off that idea, where you say it's so funny and yet so dark. The day I started reading this book, that morning I had watched for the first time Ernst Lubitsch's Ninochka. And so I read this book in the very repartee of a Lubitsch movie, who is someone who's very funny in very dark circumstances, if you've ever watched any of his movies. So I feel like that gave me a really good driveway to enter into this sort of story. I wonder if the characters realize that they're funny. I don't know if they do. Because like sometimes, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you could be just like thinking, feeling in yourself so trapped and dark and cynical about everything. And you say a thought that comes to your mind and people laugh and you're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not experiencing this as funny. I'm just experiencing my misery and trying to communicate it to you. It comes out as funny, but I'm not trying to be the clown here. And that is probably how, maybe particularly William, because I find him to be maybe the the darker of the two. Whether or not he he realizes that he's the comedian. He is the sad clown yeah. of the book. He's Pagliacci. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So both of the characters' lives circle around one another in the early chapters. They frequently visit the London Zoo and find themselves drawn to the turtles, specifically. And it's these turtles and a plan to free them that ultimately brings them into contact with one another. So this is the titular turtle diary but metaphorically symbolically why do you think the turtle is the appropriate choice of animal here i think they both and they both say this they both are filled with these images of the ocean and like these green colors and this the the freedom of the swimming and i think i mean it seems a little on the nose but i think for me it suits them and also the fact that the turtles know where they're going and it's in it's in their mm-hmm. their genes and their system like they're born to go to these places and they can't help but follow this path and i think with our 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 heroes they are totally they have no sense of where to go and they just are mm-hmm. so drawn to these creatures for that reason yeah and i do think there's an aspect where in the very nature of the physiology of them. They are very guarded, shelled creatures, very much like our characters as well. So it almost is like they physically are similar to them, but characteristically, they're completely different. And there's this drive to become these turtles themselves that are able to find their way home and find these 
incredibly long stretches of path that it seems like no one should be able to guide through that turtles do with ease and they can't even guide through a city street without like absolutely ruining their lives on every page. So I, I yeah, I, I think that's a really good <laughs> totally. point about that. I liked the part of the book where one of them observes that the turtles, their size in relation to the container yeah. that they're in, even though they seem big, like the turtles have so much less space to swim around compared to the water yeah. beetle, which which yeah. uh, Nira has compared to her little tank. Meta beetle is easily the MVP of the book. I have a different MVP. I think, but I like that you bring the beetle up. <laughs> Who's your MVP? George. 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 We, I love George. I love him. We, we, we were laughing so much about how when they go to finally steal the turtles and George is the person that works at the aquarium that's basically going to box them up and he's like, yeah, I'd like you to steal my turtles. And they get there and he's like, so did you guys bring champagne? And they're like, yes. no, we didn't bring champagne. He's like, that's okay. I got like a bottle right here. Let's go. Let's celebrate. Uh, he's a king. Yeah, he is. He's. I mean, he, he's the fulcrum that even lets them do this. Like the fact that he lets mm-hmm. them in the room and then the fact that he boxes the turtles up, gives them all the information. Mm-hmm. That was an, another funny William moment when he does, they don't bring champagne. And I think it's either in that chapter or another chapter where he's like, if there's any, like any way for me to forget something, I will <laughs> like a- any way to mi- mix up a situation, like I'll do yeah. it. <laughs> and that's yeah not bringing champagne to the turtle robbery is the perfect <laughs> perfectly like playful playful way to do that mm-hmm. uh one of the things i find interesting about george is that a lot of writers dealing with this story would make him more of an antagonist like he would be the character who is trying to um, stop them inhibit them stop them yeah like there would be more drama there would be more conflict there and there's so much conflict in the book just in these own characters minds that it's almost like you don't need that yeah. external conflict as much and then i i even expected like okay so george he's cool he likes these turtles you'd love to see them out in the ocean but then there's this whole society of the aquarium and the government that's going to be like, no, you can't steal our turtles and put them back in the ocean. And he's just, at the end, he's just like, oh yeah, I talked to them. And they were like, well, that's weird, but okay. There's no even conflict there. (laughs) The only (laughs) conflict is just residing in themselves. And that's such a fun way to read a book where these people think there's so much in peril, so much, so many problems. And then when they actually enact it, they're just like, oh, okay. Guess no one cared. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're they're a little bit disappointed that it wasn't splashed all over the newspapers. I know. The characters talk about how they have turtle thoughts after becoming enamored with this idea of, of freeing the turtles. Do you have any turtle turtle thoughts? Did you ever have a little pet turtle or anything like that? You know, uh, the for the first thing that came to mind, I never had never had a pet turtle. Never knew anyone really. I don't think that had a pet turtle. But there are there's um. A cemetery around here that I walk around at sometimes and there's a ton of turtles that what there's like a pond there and there's a ton of turtles in, in this pond and someone told me once that I forget what type of turtle it is but people will buy them 
and then they realize they can't take care of them and then they'll release them mm. and they breed really quickly and that a bunch of them just like so there's just like a ton of these little turtles around Oh. which is kind of weirdly relevant to this yeah. story and i was yes. i wasn't planning i wasn't wasn't thinking that that would go there but i guess that's my my turtle thought sure my, i've only known one person to have turtles and i was asked to take care of them and like they have so many pets they had dogs they had they had chickens and i thought like oh the turtles will be super easy but the turtles hid everywhere and i could never find the turtles oh, no. and that was that was terrifying so that's my one experience with turtles did you ever have any turtle thoughts like in, in in the theoretical sense where it's like there's something so obsessive that you feel like you have to fix and you can't do anything in your mm -hmm. life without having it intrude in, into your mind? I don't know if there's something that I would want to mention. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> That's the best answer we could have hoped for. Thank you so much. That's it. Have a great show, you guys. But I will say, though, that does because I the first time I read this book, I didn't think this but the second time I think I had more freedom in my mind to realize that what they're describing sounds like intrusive thoughts yeah but mm. but in in the way that we think of intrusive thoughts they're usually not something you should act on or yeah. you know something that you shouldn't be thinking about but so I guess this is like a weird example of intrusive thoughts that are perhaps instructive in some kind of way for these characters it's true I'm trying to think of I've, I've ever had an intrusive thought that was like would have been a positive outcome although how 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 well did these turtles get on when they got put into the ocean well yeah yeah that's a good I question i thought that the whole time i felt very um i hope they did okay it's such a great escapade though to hang a plot on because i think most people probably have conflicted feelings when they go to a zoo where it's like okay this is kind of awful for these animals to be taken from their natural environment and put on display for us in this way. And yet the characters are like, well, if I want to see this amazing parrot, like where else would I go? And it ends up being like a, a metaphor almost for the way that they are put on display in their lives and the way they're resisting being a creature with a little write-up on a placard outside the cage yeah. or something i love how madame beetle is sort of contrasted to this where even though they're freeing all these like turtles and stuff like nira herself is keeping her own animal in its own cage but like they mentioned like this this is a very different circumstance from the way that the turtles are being kept but i, I like that comparison i loved how she was like oh, I won't lower myself to just owning a cat. Like, that's too simplistic and expected. <laughs> I'll own a beetle. It's too obvious. Yeah. And I love all the descriptions of, like, how the tank worked and all the snails and the algae. It was wonderful. I did. I loved her, too. And I also like that she was, like, not what Nira had asked for originally. Like, she's yeah. also, mm. like, ended up with something a little different than what she wanted. Mm. But then she ended up being exactly the right thing. Mm-hmm. So the author is like playing with the reader's expectations of romance and romantic plot lines in this book. And we can get into that as, as deep as you want, but we might run into spoilers. So if, if we do, we'll, we'll make sure to warn the listener. 
But the story evolves in a way that does sort of subvert the traditions of that genre. What struck you about the approaches to his relationships in this book? That's what I was going to ask about spoilers, because this is one of the re- this is one of the reasons that I love this book so much is that it doesn't do what you think it's going to do. We we can put we could just put a little spoiler warning here to skip ahead our discussion on the end of the book. You can go to timestamp thirty four fifty. And for those that are really spoiler averse. We do make some vague references later to later parts of the book. So if that's you, just put this podcast down, go read the book. It's really good. We'll see you soon. But yeah, so they don't they don't get together and you you absolutely think that this whole weird connection that they have and then going on this trip. I mean, there's a moment later in the book where William says that having sex is less intimate than traveling hundreds of miles to go release some turtles Mm -hmm. with someone. And I thought that was brilliant because I think he's right. Mm -hmm. But but yet they don't get together. And there's not even like, I think he comments on her appearance once. And I don't think she ever says anything about a feeling and attraction to him. And it's just not the, these two depressed people, they find each other. They're supposed to live a happy life together, and then they just don't. <laughs> and the book, and then after they release the the turtles, like I thought that the book was going to end with that image. Yes, me too. And then there's like fifty more yes. pages. Not a long book. And yes, not a long book. Not a long book. But I was just like, I, I was delighted that that wasn't what happened, and I thought what really happened was much more compelling. And I loved that Nira ended up with George. Yes, I thought that was. I thought that was really delightful. And also, it's also, they didn't really become friends either. Like, they're just, Mm -hmm. they just did this thing together that they both had to do. And I feel like so many other writers would have just, wouldn't have gone this way. And I I just love Mm -hmm. all of that about it. It was quite shocking. Yeah. Especially because after they do it, they're driving home and they spend a night in in the truck together. There's this really intimate description of, the shape in the world was made between her back and William's front. And I was like, oh gosh, this is getting really personal. And then it's just like, they drop the car and they're like, thanks. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, let's, we'll figure out the co- the costs. Like, let me know what I owe you. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you a receipt. Yes. Maybe see you in the store. Uh, yeah. And it ends up being this transactional thing where it's like down to the yeah. pence. They have to be equal in what they're paying for the for the trip. And and going back to that idea of the one diary as opposed to two diaries, their lives continue to have these weird parallels. Yes. Even though they're not living parallel as a unit. And you're you're just kind of wondering at the end, like, well, what does this mean though? <laughs> you you need it. Yeah, like my brain was just like kind of wanting to know and it's good to have a book challenge you in that way but to still offer you some semblance of like a return on the contract that was made because she does end up with with george and there's this sweet relationship Mm -hmm. that blooms between them and seems kind of like it was hinted at all along yeah it kind of was i feel like if i read it again and on when you read it again did you see this sort of budding connection between nira and george knowing where it was going instead you know, not as much as no. Actually, I I didn't really. Interesting. I feel like it was still. I feel like it was still just like a a, a friendly okay friendly thing with you know someone who is mm-hmm. interested in the same thing as you. Like I I totally didn't get when she just suddenly goes home with him. 
after they've dropped off the turtle is just like what? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Well, the book treats William's relationship with his coworker in a similar way, where it, there's a passionlessness to the way that people yeah. get together in the book. It just kind of happens. And oh, I woke up next to this dude. And Dylan and I were kind of ended up debating this a little bit before we started recording. Like, is the book romantic? Does it end up, would we still consider it that? Ask Lubitsch. He'd probably know. <laughs> I would still say it is. But I'm a, I'm a fixture of romance, as we talked about previously on this show. <laughs> I would say it's, it's a romantic in the way that, romantic in the way that life can be yeah. romantic, not necessarily love. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, like the like what you were wondering at Cassia about like what what are we left with then? Like where do we go from here? I think that's what I love about it is that we are left with this question. And I think for me the answer is we can do things, whatever those things are, we can do them and we should do them, but the answers are not in doing those things. And I don't think there is an answer. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like the answer is in the non-answer. And I wonder mm-hmm. if George is the person who we should emulate because he ends up. Yeah, let's go, George. He doesn't mind being alive. That's like a line from this that really sticks with me is when he just says that to Nira. Well, I just I don't mind mm-hmm. being alive. And I feel like her and William do mind. Yeah. And that's where their tension is. So be like George. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's this overlap. In them, that's so deep that at one point, William says, like, what is the point of even talking to each other? There's no connection because we're too similar. And that's where this sort of romantic roadblock might come in. And they're similar in the way that they obsess about life and they obsess about death and they obsess about what they're supposed to do and all the problems that they have. And it's just completely opposite to how George lives. And arguably how Sandor lives, because we haven't gotten to Sandor, who seems like the person mm. William comes into connection with instead of George with Nira. But it's a it's very different connection. So, Anna, what do you think of the whole Sandor thing at the end? Well, I sort of feel like there's this thing, and I'm not sure if this is what, what Russell Hoban was, was getting at, but I felt like it was either a play on or a more straightforward use of like William needing to fight somebody like, and that, yeah. that being like mm-hmm. a, just like a very sort of masculine expression of this loneliness and this like, like looking for, for life in, in, in some way. And he took it out on Sandor because of his silly reasons for his, the cooker and the, the bathroom <laughs> and, you know, S- Sandor, by the way, is like an immigrant neighbor of Williams that lives in the same sort of flat as him and i also i i don't know if i want to go down this rabbit hole but i did wonder if there was like some kind of because i like william for the most part but i do think he's like maybe a little bit racist or you know (laughs) yeah yeah that aspect of it because i mean it is very it is very clearly racism but i think russell hoban is criticizing the type of person that william is in this way because the other the other the thing with Sandor is that he 
his it's his food that William doesn't like because yes. it's, it's smelly and whatever. So that's pretty clearly yeah. racism on his part. And and Sandor isn't painted in like a characteristically stereotypical way. I would say for yes, yeah, he's not this like brute who is like yelling and I feel like it. It's definitely a comment on William's perception. Yeah. Of it rather than like, this is sort of like a weird white British thing that we'd have to get to in some books that happen where it's like, okay, the author had his questionable interpretations of how other people were. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that struck me about that Sandor William fight was how it's the most descriptive, lengthy portion of physical contact between two people. Yes. And it's not a sex scene. It's it's almost like a replacement for a sex scene. Yeah, usually he will just be like, I had sex. In this one, it's like the blow landed in the stomach and the arm grabbed the shoulder. Yes. It's quite brutal, the descriptions that William's character writing the diary gets into about all this. It's fascinating. But in, in the end, they mm-hmm. find some sort of reconciliation when their neighbor... What's the name of the neighbor who commits suicide? Miss Neep. And they have to sort of help take care of the affairs of her. And I, I they, they find some reconciliation through that at the same time that Mira is romantically bonding to George. So I found that sort of convert divergence and convergence interesting between how these two people followed having released the turtles. And also I saw Miss Neep as a kind of possible future yes. for both of them, like this... Oh, the, that detail about um, because she had gone out of her way to try to pay for all her funeral arrangements in advance, and then the <laughs> price went up in like the two weeks it took her to swallow the pills or whatever. And so they they have they're like, look, um, sorry that your neighbor died, but uh, we're gonna need like twelve more pounds. <laughs> so sad. Oh, so dark, but but so truthful. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So I have a I have a quick reading here that I think overlaps with everything we've talked about. So there's one point where Nira becomes genuinely frightened that William is going to commit suicide in the same way Miss Neep did. And they, ha- they have this weird overlap of how well they understand each other. And so, so William starts his diary after Nira shows up. It was absolutely uncanny. Gave me the creeps. That woman actually thought I'd been thinking of suicide. I had been thinking of it right enough. I often do always the, I have the idea of it huddled like a sick ape in a corner of my mind, but I'd never do it. At least I don't think I'd do it. Can't imagine the state of mind in which I'd do it. Well, that's not true either. I can't imagine the state of mind. I, I've been in it often enough. No place for the self to sit down and just catch its breath. Just being hurried, hurried out of existence. And I, again, like these two people are so crossed uh, at the same time, like I, I, I thought these people were, you know, destined for each other in that way. But like you said, this does seem like a possible future for more William than Nira. But yeah, it definitely hints at the future of uh, Miss Neep committing suicide as well at the end of the book. But I just found that passage quite, quite depressing and still quite humorous in the way that we've talked about earlier in the in the show. Mm-hmm. And he he nods at that at the very end again when. They are William and his his boarding house roommates. They're dealing with Mrs. Neep. And I think in one of Mira's chapters, she just says, like, I hope William is okay. Yeah. And the time that she's thinking, I hope William is okay, that's when they're dealing with Miss mm-hmm. Neep. Mm-hmm. Such great overlap in this book. Yeah, it's really carefully assembled. So middle age is one of the themes people frequently point out about this book so both William and Nira are in that age range 
And their entries reflect maybe the insight of that age, but also the humiliations that come with it. And I found a really interesting contrast between that as a counterpoint to one of the characters being a children's book author and some of the digressions that she goes into about what it means to write books for kids. And I was I thought that this could be in a way a children's book for adults in that it centers on this kind of animal quest, like this idealistic thing of like, because all, all of all of Nira's books are involve some animal or another, yeah. a bumblebee that learns to be herself or something. <laughs> what did you make of the the contrast between these age groups? I think that's uh, a perfect way to look at this. I, I totally, totally see it. And I think that also relates to the idea of the fronts and backs of things that they keep coming to, mm-hmm. like the like the front of it maybe is the the children's stories and then the back of it is all these crazy thoughts in in their heads that are turtle diary but that is that concept or that that part of this is the source of one of my favorite sections i was wondering if i could do a little reading quickly please unless either of you already had this as well in which case i'm stealing it from you but this is when i read this book this occurs at the exact halfway point, and this is when I knew that this was one of my favorite novels ever when I read these lines. By the way, you, the, how much you marked up your book, the picture you posted on Twitter. <laughs> Kasi and I looked at that and we're like, oh my gosh. She's it's really just prepared. like we're not this every prepared. line. I just, everything, I was like, every little thing I think I might want to come back to. And mm-hmm. I also started keeping a track this is kind of stupid i started keeping a list of all the animals that are referenced just to like see and i had to stop after i had to stop after page 19 because i was like there's just too many i can't we talked about doing that with a high-winded jamaica we Mm. could do it with this book too yeah yes yep it is also more animal heavy towards the beginning so i might have stopped too soon but but this is the part people write books for children and other people write about the books written for children but I don't think it's for the children at all. I think that all the people who worry so much about the children are really worrying about themselves, about keeping their world together and getting the children to help them do it, getting the children to agree that it is indeed a world. Each new generation of children has to be told, this is a world, this is what one does, one lives like this. Maybe our constant fear is that a generation of children will come along and say, this is not a world. This is nothing. There's no way to live at all. <sighs> it's excellent. Yeah, I think that's a great passage. And I do think it really sort of ties that idea together, how like this is sort of a, a children's book for adults. I, I When you talk about how the front is more of the child section, the back is more of those like adult themes and thoughts that come into the book. I find there's this interesting mm-hmm. uh, fulcrum point between these things where for the first half of this book, I'm reading it. I'm like, really, this is a really sweet story. It's sort of inspiring about these people that are gonna, that are so interconnected and they're going to find each other and they're going to release these turtles. And it, it did feel like a children's book in a way. And there's adult themes. There's adult ideas of depression and intimacy and stuff brought up. And then, and then suddenly there's a point where they go to what is called uh, original therapy, mm-hmm. which is basically... Oh yes. Birthing therapy and they like simulate birthing people out of a 
busty woman's legs. And there's one point a man just starts <laughs> sucking on her breasts. And then the two characters that are there, which is William and Harriet, go home and have sex. And I was like, whoa, okay, this, this really changed. This really changed. This is no longer like a adult children's book. This is uh, an adult book. What was your reaction during that point, Anna? Like, literally, I was reading next to Cassia when she got to that part and went, oh! Uh, yeah, I definitely, it, it took me took me by surprise, too. And I thought, I don't know why this is what I thought, but I was... That whole section in the character of Ruby, that was the the busty woman, it reminded me of Tom Robbins. I don't know if either of you have read much of him. Tell us about it. He, it, oh gosh, I haven't read him in a while. I used to love, he has this book, Still Life with Woodpecker, that I used to really love, and he did. It's a great title. Yeah, it, and you should look up a cover of the book. It's, can you picture camel cigarettes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like a camel cigarette pack, but it's a woodpecker and where the camel should be. And it's just beautiful design. But they're these sort of... Oh, that's think, awesome. Yeah, it's it's really good. <laughs> but I think I sort of associate his work with like this like quirky, philosophical... But I got a sense of of that same kind of... Like working through like philosophical concepts in this physical experience that they're going through. Like it felt very much also like... 70s self-help groups and like yes. this this whole kind of like mystic search for things and so i guess in a way that's like an adult version of of this idea of trying to find yourself or trying to improve yourself or or whatever it is and i do feel like william would have been more critical but he wasn't he kind of seemed to get something out of it mm. and i find that interesting yeah. Yeah, that is interesting because sometimes when you go to those kind of like hippy dippy things, the the people who get into it or are moved by it are not necessarily the ones you would expect. Sure. It it brings out like interesting sides of people. Totally. I, I am considering that, you know, this whole process of this therapy is sort of like a rebirth to a childlike state, which is something that William mm -hmm. sort of pines for and you know, we talk about how this is sort of a children's book for adults and it's structure some sort of way. Maybe there's an aspect of that that's playing out and how these people are trying to return back to the form of innocence and learning about the world, even though they are adult men being squeezed out of the thighs of a, of a woman. <laughs> yeah, and the book in that way, metaphorically, features a, a birth and a death. So it encompasses all of life. And then it has that middle, middle age point, the midpoint that we're stuck yeah. in, in the diary. There is a birth to a death. Mm-hmm. And there is a thing where people always, every new round of parents grapple with some, I, I don't have children, but I listen to the radio and read the newspaper or whatever, and people are like, how do I tell my kids about racism? How do I tell my kids about climate change? And there's this idea of like, well, what, we need to give a kid an answer, even though, like you said before, Anna, the answer is a non-answer. It's like, how do you tell yourself about climate change, right? But yeah. there's this special pressure, like when a, when a little one is rising up, it's like, well, how can we tell our children about this? Like, well, how do you tell your grandmother about it? You kind of have to grapple with the mire of what we all live with when it's not new. You got to have some way to move forward when... These are old concepts that are static. And I think the, the book finds a way to deal with unfulfilling parts of life in a way that still feels 
complete and narrative without being generic. That reminds me of another section. And I think I don't want to compare like children to animals necessarily, but I do think there is a comparison to be made though in like how we like try to prepare children for the world and then how also like we take care of animals in the way that George particularly is taking care of them. And if I could read another thing really quick. Yes, yes. That connects to to this is so after they have released the turtles and they came they come back and then this is right before Nira and George start their romance and she this is starting with her. How do you stay cheerful? I said. I don't mind being alive, he said. He poured the tea, took a tin of tobacco out of his pocket, rolled a cigarette, lit it. There's nothing you can do about this, you know, he said. Nothing to be done, really, about animals. Anything you do looks foolish. The answer isn't in us. It's almost as if we're put here on Earth to show how silly they aren't. I don't mind. I just like being around them. Great stuff, George. And, Let's go. Oh, yeah, he's just, he's the mm-hmm. best. But but I think that is a very similar sort of feeling about how, what do we tell our children? And, you know, how, how, do, mm-hmm. how do we live in this world where we keep animals in a zoo to look at like we just mm-hmm. yeah what did he say i'm just gonna repeat him we drink champagne we just yeah. do <laughs> yeah we we show them how silly they aren't i think that's what we do with children too in a way mm-hmm. so i also want to talk about here where we're talking about like how nira and william can't necessarily handle their life and especially their death at some point in the same way george can i feel like they're because of their ages as well there's this sort of expectations that they feel like they have to either break or fall into where George is like, well, I'm a smoker. I have to just keep on smoking. It's going to kill me, but it, I guess it keeps me feeling like I'm living. <laughs> or going back to how Nero was like, I may be a middle-aged woman, but I don't have a cat and I'm not a vegetarian. Yes. So I find this interesting where like these two people were sort of like grappling with how they either need to accept or rebel against their quote unquote point in life. And I, I, I found that fascinating. Mm. Every age has has some uh, expectation on like that it's usually gender based or it comes and goes with the zeitgeist. You should be vegetarian, you should be vegan, or you should be doing keto, or you should be doing something else. And I think that that goes back to what we were thinking before of the uh, here's a turtle. It's the source of turtle soup. Like <laughs> we're turning this whole species into the beautiful, precious human life into like some silly attribute about them. Yeah. Coincidence also plays a large role in the plot and then becomes a direct subject of the reflection in the diaries. Is this a comment on the artificial nature of storytelling and specifically stories about couples? What do you see as the role of coincidence in this narrative? So the coincidences reminded me of that movie I Heart Huckabees. Have you either of you seen oh, that? Oh, sure. One? I haven't seen that. And that that kind of had the same effect for me. So in that movie, I think the one of the main character like sees the same guy a bunch of times and he becomes obsessed Uh with the coincidence of that and he hires these like existential detectives to help him figure out the mystery (laughs) and i think that's kind of similar here except in a much less overt way but i think these coincidences reflect the sort of mystery of our everyday lives and also in another way like that that like I said, the answer is the non-answer, but I think the answer could also just be like living within these coincidences and living within the mystery of the of our lives and like accepting just to keep going just to see what happens next. 
and what happens next might be a coincidence and that might be kind of fun do you think nira and william ever coincidence into each other at another point i'd like to think that but i don't i but in a way where they still never they never become friends i don't think they ever become no. friends but i do they don't they don't have each other for dinner or anything no i don't think so for turtle soup yeah <laughs> where, where's the tumblr thread of turtle of turtle diary fanboys that are like drawing little fan things yeah. like fan fiction sandor's cooking dinner in the kitchen and william and george and nira hanging out in the living room uh. come on Where's our Tumblr for that? It could happen. Maybe it's out there. Maybe you can make it, Dylan. (laughs) (laughs) No one wants to see me draw. (laughs) Absolutely not. What a one of the best moments in this book, and we haven't put the Mariano episode out yet that we recorded earlier this week with Adam Morgan. But he talked about a moment in that book where he called it like the gasp moment, and it's a moment he audibly gasps in. Then he also did talk about like a half gasp moment. But there was a big gasp moment for me in this book when we talk about coincidences and it's this point where Nira is at a restaurant and she overhears William and Harriet who have gotten together without her knowledge really sort of talking about different aspects of the turtles and books and she's like overhearing this and she's like oh my gosh William and Harriet are there like should I say anything and she's starting to worry and then she eats really quickly and she like leaves and as she leaves she looks over at the table and it's two different people it's not William and Harriet and that was a moment I went oh my gosh that's what what a great subversion of the coincidences that have been happening this whole time where we keep on thinking mm-hmm. like, oh, that's so strange that would happen. It must say something about what's going on. And then there's this moment where we, we think the coincidence has to be happening and it gets pulled out from under us. It's an excellent part of the book. People have talked about like in different narrative theories, they've tied like traditional storytelling devices to people's belief in God or a higher power that like, the narrative voice is in some ways like a stand-in for a god voice that's saying what's happening and like the novel has been in transition ever since then like as people become more agnostic or atheist and other things have to like give us meaning and give us order in our lives and existence and i saw the coincidence so many of them constantly throughout the book as being like this weird replacement for some answer, some religion that the characters maybe feel an absence of. It was emptiness's divine intervention. Yeah, maybe. That's a really interesting point. It does break in that way where this book isn't narrated from a godlike place, given it's sort of in a diary form. But I, I love that concept I, about the way that there is this sort of divine intervention filling each other in because they really are people in need more than anything. Mm. It makes me think of another section that I noted. If I could just read one more paragraph. Please. I promise I won't read the whole book. (laughs) But this is a Nira chapter. This is the opening of a Nira chapter. Something very slowly, very dimly has been working in my mind and now is clear to me. There are no incidences. There are only coincidences. When a photograph in a newspaper is looked at closely, one can see the single half-tone dots it's made of. There, one sees the incidence of a single dot. There, another and another. Thousands of them coinciding make the face, the house, the tree, the whole picture. Every picture is a pattern of coincidence unrecognizable in the single dot. Each incidence of anything in life is just a single dot, and my face is so close to that dot that I can't see what it's part of. I shall never be able to stand back far enough to see the whole picture. I shall die in blind ignorance and rage. Mm. 
And I think that's like the opposite of the God view. Like the God view is always being able to see the whole picture and our characters yeah. are just stuck in this single, their, their, their face being so close to the dot. Yeah, that's true. But through the book, we get access to not all the dots, but just like a few more than yeah. the characters themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Perfectly said. Were there any other parts of the book that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? There's, I feel like there's so much on every page that you could delve into. I know. That's the thing with this book. I like every, every other line, there's like a, a whole world in it. And then another thing with this book which was just one more thing that I did want to mention because I just love this movie. But it's also filled with references to other things. There's so many references to yes. to books, to movies, to poetry, all these different things. But one one thing that I really liked, and maybe a little bit on the nose, but uh, it works for me, The Swimmer. Have either of you seen that movie? I have, and I love that movie, and I totally watched it by chance on TCM one day without any idea of what I was getting into. I thought it was going to be like a fun summer movie, no. and I was like, holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> yep. Kasi has been recommending me to see that movie for a while, and I definitely oh. want to because Burt Lancaster is like one of, if not my favorite actors of all time. He's so good. And you haven't seen it? Oh, you got to watch it. He's so good in it. He's so I know, good in it. I know. But go go off on what you were saying. Oh, so I just liked that. So that that uh, movie is referenced in one of William's chapters. He just talks about having seen it, and he describes the plot of the movie. And I don't want to to give it away too much to Dylan, although he would have read it in the book. But yeah, <laughs> but it it's very. I mean, the fact of, of the, the, this character in the movie, the swimmer, he's a swimmer. It's the turtles. Like, I feel like it's just very, mm-hmm. yes. and he's, mm-hmm. and, and the, the end of that movie is, I think, could be where William is heading. Like, I think that's another, like, p- potential. Or, or he already was there in a way, because he's the divorced yes, father. Yeah, that's true. And then, of course, he had seen the movie with his ex-wife. So that was a... Another knife wound. Yeah, exactly. And then just the the next line after in the paragraph where he's talking about this movie, he just says, no swimming pools for me, which... <laughs> and another, like, brilliant, like, playfully dark moment that could also be read in, in numerous ways because the swimming pools in the movie are... It's not a good thing that this this character is going from swimming pool to swimming pool so yeah but i just i just really love that just one of one of many i just another reason this book is so rich all these just references to other things and that was probably my favorite one Mm -hmm. yeah and it he also talked i mean swimming is such a powerful metaphor and experience but the the sharks oh there's lots mm, of shark mm -hmm. imagery and stuff we get that contrast between the turtle and the shark and in the moment you read from dylan doesn't she visualize him as a shark or a shark eating him or something yeah and 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 there it leads to this point where like she she's afraid he's gonna die and so she has to like go check on him she goes to the bookstore and is like demands to know his address and his phone number and stuff right but they talk about how sharks have to constantly swim or they die yeah oh there's a such a powerful i wish i had that written down right now but there's a powerful line that sort of is like this forced existence of them needing to swim and swim and swim at all points. Otherwise, they'll they'll sink. And the characters are struggling to swim. And yet they need to find a way to. And it's a beautiful 
metaphor, but it's also not over. I think when they use those cultural references, it gives it a lightness of touch that makes it feel very like lifelike and like, oh, I was just watching this movie last night. It happened to be about swimming. Nira gets into a part where she seems to dictate the entire screenplay of King Kong to the reader. Of yes, book. yes. <laughs> and uh, give her own like audio commentary about every main scene in the movie, which I found enjoyable because as well, I, I, I do like that movie. I have seen that one. <laughs> but yeah, I, I really liked all the different filmic and literary references. Anna, you need to drop your letterbox. Oh, oh my gosh. It's probably Mother Slug. I'm not sure how you find those names. Are you actually on Letterboxd? Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't, I don't do too many reviews on there, but I love the film diary use of it. Like, Just like Turtle Diary. Yeah, exactly. Full circle. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you so much, Anna, for, for coming on and for- Thank you so much. Making us read this book. Not making us, letting okay. us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah forcing us at gunpoint i mean i i i think i would this is a book i've like been trying to get other people to read it so far none of my friends have taken me up on it so i was beyond delighted to have some people who couldn't turn me down (laughs) (laughs) well hopefully when the when the podcast comes out that'll be an extra incentive for them to actually pick it up and read it totally thank you so much for having me this has been really great anytime Well, that was fun. That was a blast. Thank you so much, Anna. I was going to say that I want to go visit some turtles. Yeah, we should. Because I always want to get into the atmosphere of the book after we're done talking about it. But I really, I don't like zoos. They creep me out. Yeah, it's tough. But if you ever want to, I can take you to the aquarium. Is there an aquarium here? Yes, there is. And they have a turtle exhibit. Very similar. They literally have oyster catchers on it, just like the one in the book. Oh, God. Well, maybe we should free them. Yeah, for sure. But we'll have to edit this out. That way there's no incriminating trail. Yeah, they took... When they did it in the book, though, they had to drive, what, 200 miles to the coast? We'd have to drive a lot further. Where is the nearest coast to Albuquerque? It might be Gulf of Mexico or like Baja, California or something. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Not... not. We'd have to drive across several states. Those turtles would be dead by the time we reach the ocean. Or we could put a little kiddie pool in like the back of a U-Haul. You know what? That works. We'll get to it. Okay, I'm glad we have this plan. That you all didn't hear. That that we never talked about. Nope. Oh, I wanted to mention, we now have new theme music, which was composed for us by the incredible John Hookstra. So thank you so much to him for that. Sounds great. And thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Please join us again in two weeks when we discuss A School for Fools by Sasha Sokolov. Please rate and review our podcast if you enjoy it. And we have a digital bookshop that you can check out. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.